Please sit down. So I have a, a question for you. Um, in the service today, we're going to be looking at somebody, someone rather unusual who behaves slightly out of character. So the question I have for you, I don't want to, I want to answer is, for those of you who stood at school, um, is there a really unusual kid in your class, and why are they unusual? And for those of us who are, who are older, who do you remember growing up? Or perhaps maybe you were that kid who was the strange one. I think I might have been. <laughs> so somebody I remember, this isn't, from, this isn't from school, it's from a Christian camp, and somebody else knows this person. Um, uh, Rob and I used to help at a camp, and there was this, this boy who came on the camp called Daniel. Um, and he was quite odd because he came on the, on the same camp multiple years despite having no real interest in faith in God. Um, and his parents weren't Christian either. Um, he much preferred the company of adults to other children, which is a bit unusual. Um, no, none of the camp rules applied to him, but he was, t- he was so charming he always got away with it. But the, the oddest thing was he really liked climbing trees. And more than once, he wasn't in the dorm when we got up. And there was this massive tree, sort of 15 meters high in the grounds. And he'd gone out in the middle of the night and climbed it and fallen asleep at the top. And, well, yeah, we, t- we tried to tell him health and safety, but no, he was having no- nothing, nothing of it. Um, now, you wonder what happens to these people. And actually, Daniel happens to live locally, and I've kept in touch with him until a few years ago. And he's now a sort of relatively... Uh, well-functioning adult and he's got married and he's still a bit odd but he's still a really nice guy and I'm glad I sort of know him um, but perhaps that wasn't what we were expecting when we, when we knew him at age 11 so strange kid climbing trees here's, here's a question I, I would like an answer for um, who do we know in the Bible who liked climbing trees I heard a name over there? Zacchaeus. So, Zacchaeus in the Gospel of Luke, um, short, rich, tax collector, so not a very nice guy in, in, there, in the um, area of the day. And Zacchaeus climbed the tree, well, because he wanted to see Jesus and he couldn't see over the crowd. Um, but as you, if, if you know the story, Jesus, out of all the people in the crowd, wanted to talk to Zacchaeus. Jesus saw potential in this person that nobody else did, um, this sort of rich, nasty collaborator of the Romans. Um, and he got an immediate reaction. Um, he basically repented. He said, I'm going to give away half my money, and I'm going to, anybody I've defrauded, I'm going to give them four times what I've stolen. So what's the point of telling you this story? Um, well, we talked about strange people, and... Often in life, things turn out the way we expect. That's just the way things are. Um, or God works the way he usually does. But sometimes we get surprised or blessings come from somewhere we wouldn't expect. Now, Zacchaeus wasn't planning to become a follower of Jesus that day. Um, and I'm sure that the people who saw him weren't expecting that. But Jesus saw something, and something amazing happened. So in the main church today, we're going to be looking at the story of Rahab, um, a prostitute in the Old Testament who helped the people of God. 
and her part of the story of faith. And again, we'll find out that she acted in a way that nobody, was going to, nobody expected. Um, I don't know what you'll be doing in your groups elsewhere those are going out, but let me encourage you to be open to surprising things happening. Um, things, may, things may go as normal, but something surprising and wonderful may happen, and I hope it does. And let me, let me encourage you this week um, to look out for these sort of unusual people in our lives, um, people we may not usually interact with. Perhaps God has a blessing for you from them, or a blessing for them from you. Um, so let's, I'll pray briefly and then we're going to sing again. Father God, thank you for the people you put around us in our lives. Thank you for the ones that we get on well with and we relate well with. But thank you also for the people who are perhaps a bit on the margins, um, a bit odd in some respects. And Father God, as Jesus did, help us to look out for those people. Um, Look out for what they may need and for how they may relate to us. Um, And Father, I want to pray for all our relationships this week, that you will be in what we say and what we do and what we see in people. Amen. So we're going to stand again and we're going to sing Brother, Sister, Let Me Serve You. Um, So we're now going to to read the passage. Um, Is somebody expecting to do the reading? Nope, I shall shall do it then. I suggested suggested we could get somebody, but I haven't had a reply. So we're going to read today uh, the second chapter of the book of Joshua. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. 
When we heard of it, our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our, hand, whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Thanks be to God for his word. So before we open the passage and look at Rahab's faith, um, let's sing something of our own faith. Um, She was looking forward to a better future with the people of Israel, or that's what she said. We'll come back to that. So we're going to sing the, the, the song, All My Days, looking at what we're looking forward to. So please stand if you can. Please sit down. So before the service, I was talking with Nick and a couple others, as you do, about the general election. Um, And I think one of the annoyances, particularly this time, is finding out what people actually stand for and what they believe. Um, And perhaps even worse is what politicians say about their opponents. So we're told that Johnson will sell off the NHS to the Americans, that Corbyn will raise taxes and make everybody poorer, Um, Sturgeon will abandon any principles she has to get into bed with anybody who will give give her another Scottish referendum, and so on. And it really takes quite a lot of digging to to get to find out what people are actually saying and what they actually believe, what's in their manifestos. Now, this may shock you, but theology does the same kind of thing to a a different degree. 
Um, so if you go to, say, an undergraduate lecture in theology, let's say on what Paul understood by the phrase the law, you'll be told that Augustine thought this, and Aquinas thought that, and Calvin thought something up there, and then she writes something down there. And they all went far too far in their different directions. And the, the lecturer will say, well, it's not up there, not there, not there, not there, not there. The truth's somewhere around here, and that's, we want to be moderate. But the problem is that all these extreme positions are ones that you couldn't imagine anybody remotely sanely holding. They're just ridiculous. Um, you couldn't imagine a, a sensible Christian holding them, let alone one of these great leaders of the faith. Um, and these positions, I think, often get sort of passed down without people ever looking at the original. I think the, the best example was an lecture on communication theory, um, where, some, where somebody called Claude Shannon was mentioned. Um, now, he was criticised because what he's basically said was if Alice says something to Bob and Bob hears it clearly, Bob will understand immediately what Alice actually meant. There's no room for error either in Alice not quite saying what she meant or Bob misunderstanding what, what Alice, what he actually heard. Now, I'm using the example because I think there are people who know who Claude Shannon is. Um, he's not a theologian, he's not a social scientist, he's an electronic engineer. And the problem he was trying to solve is, if you've got a, digi- a, a, sort of a pattern, a digital signal going down a wire, um, and the wire is slightly faulty, how do you ensure you get a faithful signal at the other end? So he was only interested in the actual s- signal, what the, not what the signal meant. Um, but Shannon has become a byword in this particular theory for people who don't care what the actual meaning of messages actually is. Um, so... Um, in general, in theology, if not in politics, I don't think this is meant to be malicious, um, at least when the people are dead. I mean, the theologians, like anybody, can be quite vicious in, their, uh, in conferences when they're talking to each other. Um, the idea is really that they want to give an idea what the kind of big range of possible answers to a question is, um, and you tend to go to extremes and simplify things just to make it comprehensible. Um, I mean, you've only got sort of five minutes to explain what Aquinas' view is. If you really wanted to understand Aquinas' view, you'd need an entire lecture course and to go and, go and read the Latin. Um, so that's what's really going on. So you may wonder what all this has to do with Rahab. And the reason I'm telling you this is that in the history of the church, she has received exactly the same treatment. Um, so modern theologians didn't really... Um, invent this sort of simplification problem. Um, It occurs in the church fathers um, and even in the pages of the Bible itself. And you can sort of see why. You can see Paul or James or whoever wrote Hebrews wanting an example of somebody of great faith. So they say, oh, Abraham, um, or a great leader of the church, Moses, or a man after God's heart, David. Um, But despite the fact that the Old Testament makes it quite clear that Abraham's faith wasn't quite there at various times. Um, Moses ran away when he was called to lead, and David's morality leaves a little too little to be uh, wanted in many respects. Um, but that's the sort of summary position they had. Um, so Rahab is also drawn into the New Testament. We've seen her, well, if you, those of you who were here when I preached last time, we saw her in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. Um, she appears in the long list of heroes of the faith in the book of Hebrews. Um, and perhaps most importantly, in the book of James, which is the, James lists two people, um, 
um, who have faith in God and act on it. Um, one is Abraham and one is Rahab. Um, and he, he lists both of those as people who act on their faith without the security of knowing the outcome. So the story of our passage then becomes Rahab, alone among all the citizens of Canaan, is granted faith in the God of Israel and through this faith risks her life to save the spies sent by Moses and is saved from the coming destruction. Um, and if you read a few more chapters on in, in Joshua, you find out that she becomes part of the nation um, by becoming King David's great-grandfather, marrying someone called Salmon, um, and that's why she appears in Matthew. And in Jewish thinking, think, things go even further. Um, so she is portrayed as the ideal proselyte, the ideal con- convert to Judaism. Um, and she's described as a woman of great beauty, the mother of priests and the mother of prophetesses. Um, she's somebody who is really thought of as bringing the best of the Gentiles into the Jewish nation. Um, and that seems to be at the back of the minds of the New Testament writers as well. I think particularly for James, where you've got Abraham sort of the, in the covenant, in the, line, in the line of succession, acting on his faith. And you've got Rahab, outside the covenant, also acting in faith of God, um, and the two fuse together. So, so applying this message to the church, what should we get? Well, we should be looking for people outside our church, preferably good-looking, good-looking ones, um, who nevertheless have faith in God. We should welcome them in, incorporate them into our membership, and all will be happiness and light ever, ever after. Well, yes, but not quite. Um, hopefully, from the way I framed the question, you'll see this is a bit of a simplification of the truth. Um, there, is, there is definitely truth here, but it's an ideal and doesn't quite match the facts. And there's more going on under the surface. Um, and I think there's a general principle here which is worth mentioning at this stage, is that the New Testament often deals in the sort of principles and the ideals, um, but the Old Testament is where, where, the, where the rubber hits the road. It's where you see people actually living these kind of things out. The New Testament is sort of set in a fairly small period of time um, when they were expecting Jesus to come back fairly imminently. Um, and there's, there's obviously quite a bit about how to live as a church, but the sort of long-term, the long-term um, lives and societies don't really occur. Was the, obviously, the Old Testament appears over periods of centuries, and you really see people living their lives over long periods. So... But with that question in mind, let's go back to Joshua and dig a bit deeper and see what we find. Um, now, there's quite a lot in the book. I'm not going to pitch on everything, but just draw out a few points um, and a few questions. Now, if you've got a Bible, it would probably be helpful to have it open, so I'm going to refer to certain verses. Um, so the first point I want to make is that Rahab's declaration of faith is in fact the most important thing in this chapter. Um, Now let me just explain how this chapter is structured because that's quite, it's fairly important. Um, It's it's called, it's a sort of there and back structure. Um, Both in in terms of the narrative of what's actually going on and in terms of the structure, the way the story is laid out. Um, So for instance, you could read just chapter, just verse one and then 22, 23, 24. And that makes a coherent story. The spies sent into land by Joshua, they stay three days, 
and they come back and they give a good report. Or, so that's, that's the outer bit of the story. Or you can read a bit, bit more further in. You can read 1 to 7 and 15 to 24. And the story now becomes the spies go into the land. They're in danger of being, uh, being found out and probably killed. They're saved by a local woman. They escape and they get back to Joshua. And this is sort of the story you'd expect at this point. Um, so um, the first chapter of Joshua... Um, and indeed, everything, everything in the Bible since Exodus is all about the long story of how the, the Israelites get out of slavery in Egypt. They come across the Red Sea. They wander around um, Sinai for a while, and they get to the Promised Land. And the story is all focused on the Israelites. It's not focused on anybody else. So what, what Rahab says in um, verses 8 to 14 um, firstly, it's the centre of the story, which is where they put the most important bit. Um, secondly, it's a real surprise, because you're not expecting a long speech by somebody who is an right here. Um, so it's quite disruptive to the story, um, and it's also significantly one of the longest speeches by a woman in the Old Testament. Um, now, the women don't get much of a look in in the Old Testament, that's just the way the things were in those days. And in fact, there, weren't many, there aren't many that, that many long speeches. Um, but if you look at the speeches in order, this is probably third or fourth longest time the woman gets to speak in the Old Testament without being interrupted by somebody. Um, so what can we say about it? Um, well, positively, it talks about God in a very similar way to many of the Psalms. So Rahab is appealing to God on the basis that he has shown power on behalf of his people, um, and she's showing appropriate fear and awe of God. So she's saying, you are amazing, God. I'm a bit scared of you, but, but I, I tr- if I trust in you, you'll do good things for me. Um, um, and this is also in line with the sort of definition of, of faith in, he- in Hebrews. Um, it says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, but on the basis of what we've already seen. So we get a good message about faith from here, and it's quite a useful message about faith, that it's not some warm, fuzzy feeling about God. Um, Faith does depend on what God has done, and faith does impact on what God will do, or is what we hope he will do. Um, But there are some challenges to the sort of, what I call the perfect Rahab model. And the first comes in verse 11, which reads... For the Lord our, our God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Well, it doesn't. He would say that if he's in Psalms. But what Rahab said is, for the Lord your God is God in heaven. So at least at this point, Rahab isn't identifying herself either with God or the people in Israel. Um, so what is she motivated by? That's the second question. Um, on one reading of this passage... She is wanting to join with worshipping this new God. Um, But if you want to be more critical, she can see which way the wind's blowing. She's seeing there's powerful invaders who are at the borders of the kingdom. They've had a series of decisive victories. Jericho is clearly next in their path. So her choice is go down with Jericho or jump ship to the new people. Um, And you don't really know which of the two it is. We aren't told in the story. So she wants to save herself. She wants to save her family. 
Um, and in support of this view, um, she isn't the most sort of sympathetic character. Um, she's a prostitute. Um, she's a woman which, um, which in those days is probably not quite as serious as it would be today. So she's a woman of not quite ill repute, but certainly not particularly good repute. Um, and if you look at verse 3, she's perfectly happy to lie to the city officials. Um, so we don't know. I mean, the, we, the, the, there are two ways of reading the story. We, don't, we aren't told which is which. Is which. And there's a third point, if we look at what happens later on in, in chapter 6. Nothing is said about how Rahab and her family actually do integrate into Israel. There's no provision for which tribe they become part of, which land they get. Now, this may seem a rather pedantic point, but in other cases in the Bible, it's made a big thing of. Um, you get somebody who's, who's lost their land because their, their husband has died, and their children get basically adopted by an uncle. So the succession goes that way. Um, and there's quite a lot of case law for this kind of thing in the various Old Testament books. Um, and there's definitely cases where, the, where bringing new people into Israel is regarded as a problem. So if you read the book of Judges, the next book after Joshua, you'll find that there's lots of problems because Israel haven't taken the entire promised land and the people left there start rising up or taking over. Um, and similarly, um, so a few, few centuries later in the book of Ezra, uh, people are criticized for taking non-Israelite wives. So in Israel, this was a, was a big thing which should have been addressed. Um, and there's a fourth question. I'm not sure I, I think this is a fair criticism, but some people have said, did the spies make the right decision by swearing allegiance to Rahab? Um, they were the people who basically opened the floodgates or the, um, and let the people in in the first place. Um, well, I think it's quite difficult to see what else they could have done given their situation. Um, but it does link to another way of looking at Joshua. Um, now, I don't, again, quite agree with this, but I agree with the conclusion. Um, so the school of thought says that Joshua is structured in, in, in the following way. Joshua 1, uh, which is all about the Lord's promises to Joshua, and starting off with the arrangements for conquering the land, is all about the Israelite, the covenant people's responses to faith. Um, again, we're seeing the same kind of message we saw in James. And Joshua 2 is parallel, and Joshua 2 is talking about how the non-covenant people, the Gentiles, get into, into um, respond, to, respond to God and become part of the, the people of faith. Um, I'm not sure I'd, I'd be that dogmatic about that division into two chapters, uh, but they do argue what I think is correct, um, that there, is prob- there are problems by merging the Israelites who've got the law, they've got many um, decades, centuries of history with, with God, with these outsiders coming in um, with possibly mixed motives who, don't, who perhaps haven't got that history in the relationship with God. And what they're saying is that the author of the book, by, doing, by writing it this way, is basically setting things up so we aren't surprised when things fall over. So, as I've said, the story goes, um, Israel come out of Egypt, go, go around Sinai, get promised land. And at the beginning of Joshua 2, we're expecting them to win. There's no, there's no reason to think they're not going to get the whole promised land. God's with them. Um, so Joshua 2 is where this narrative starts to break down. Um, and then we see the, the problems at the, ver- the various cities where uh, victories aren't won, where there's sort of contamination. 
and the rot begins to set in. So what can we draw on all this from our church life? Um, so we started with the view that we should look, at, look for outsiders outside the faith, welcome them in, and all will be well. Now, since then, we found quite a lot of questions and, unfortunately, not very many answers. Um, and there aren't really answers either in the text or, indeed, what other people have said about it. Um, so I would like to give you a sermon with lots of answers, all the loose ends tied up. Um, what I'm going to leave you with is a plea for wisdom and prayer um, and taking care and thinking about things. So the fundamental of, of, of message of Rahab is about faith. That is what is there. God is good. Um, love of God, sorry, God is good. Love of God lies at the heart of, who we are, heart of who we are as a people. And we should look out for faith and encourage it in people outside our existing church community. Um, and nothing, nothing, nothing we've said contradicts that as a fundamental message. But there's a secondary message which says that doing it in practice is complicated. Um, and there's a whole lot of questions about how we go about integrating people into our community who've come from the outside. Now, we've seen that unlike Rahab being this sort of perfect woman, um, she was a complicated person with motives and a lot of baggage, um, and certainly quite a substantial family who came along. We don't know where their, where their faith position was. But, and it's quite a big but, all of these considerations apply to who we are as a church. We're not perfect either. Our community isn't perfect. Um, and there's plenty we have to think about, about how we deal with issues in the church, how we make the church better. The advantage we have, I think, is that we already know who each other are. We have some idea of our strengths and weaknesses and where people's blind spots are and what we may need to work around. Um, well, at least, at least until God sort of chipped the edges off us and made us living stones as he promised to do. So what do we do with Rahab? Is she an ideal convert? Probably not. But she is a convert. Um, and we should, be, we should be thankful for all who turn to the Lord and all who come through these doors, however much an unfinished article they should be. So, from what, I, from what I've said, um, don't be discouraged about going out and meeting people, um, but do be aware of who they are. Um, but that's only because they are human and we are human and none of us is the unfinished article. So we'll be coming back in a few minutes to pray about what we think this means for us as a church. Um, but before that, let's turn things around. Uh, we've talked a lot about other people needing to be reshaped. Um, but let's pray for ourselves to be reshaped. So I think that's, that's, that's an important thing to happen first. So um, if the musicians like to go to um, rejoin... And we're going to sing um, the song, Lord, I Come to You. And the first lines of this are, I'll, I'll read them out. Lord, I come to you. Let my heart be changed, renewed, flowing from the grace that I found, found in you. And let's remember this is only by God's grace that any of us are saved. So let's stand and sing. <laughs>